This afternoon we'll hear a sermon proclaiming the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ as it is summarized in Lord's Day 8 of the Heidelberg Catechism. In Lord's Day 8, the church confesses what the Bible teaches about God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is what we confess. It's page 524 in your book of praise. How are these articles divided into three parts? The first is about God, the Father, and our creation. The second about God, the Son, and our redemption. The third about God, the Holy Spirit, and our sanctification. Since there is only one God, why do you speak of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because God has so revealed himself in his word. that These three distinct persons are the one, true, eternal God. And after we've heard the preaching of the gospel, we will respond by singing hymn 28, stanza 7. Well, of the congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord's Day 8 comes after Lord's Day 7, and Lord's Day 7 tells us what true faith is. Now, I think you're way further in the catechism here in Emmanuel. So just to summarize, Lord's Day 7 tells us that faith is knowing, but not just knowing, it's knowing the things that the gospel teaches us, and then also knowing them to be true. And then there's a third aspect as well. Faith is not, is not just knowing about. It's not just knowing to be true, the things that scripture teaches, but it's trusting what the scripture reveals to us, believing in it, and staking our lives on it. An example might be a little child on the edge of a pool and the father is calling the child to jump. The child's afraid. And the daddy says, I'll catch you. It's okay, you can jump, I'll catch you. The first level of faith is to know. The child hears the words and knows that the father is saying, I'll catch you. The second level of faith is to know that it's true. When he says it, it's actually a truth that he's affirming. He will certainly catch. But the third level of faith is to act on that knowledge. The third level of faith is to throw yourself into the arms of the Father, to trust so deeply and so well that you act upon it. That's what faith is. Faith is knowing, knowing to be true, and trusting. Not an arcane body of knowledge, not a collection of traditions and customs, but faith is knowing and trusting someone. The Apostles' Creed in question and answer 23 of the Catechism. The Apostles' Creed is divided into three parts, and every one of those parts focuses on one person of the Trinity. 
God the Father Almighty, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And have you noticed that the first article says, I believe in God the Father Almighty? That the second article says, I believe in Jesus Christ? The eighth article says, I believe in the Holy Spirit? What about the ninth article? Does it say, I believe in a holy Catholic church? No. It says, I believe a holy Catholic church. That was deliberate. This Apostles' Creed has been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. And that difference is deliberate. We believe in God. We believe facts about what God has done, but we don't believe in those facts. We don't believe in the church. We don't believe in anything or anyone except God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He is the object of our faith. There can be no other. And how do we know God? How do we know this God in whom we believe and must believe? In whom believing, to believe, is to live and to have life and to have life eternal. How do we know him? Well, God reveals himself. He reveals his person and his work. And he reveals his person and his work, first of all, in what the Belgian Confession calls that book of creation, in the creation and the government of the universe. We see the fingerprints of God everywhere. You've got to be blind not to see it. And the more that man studies the universe, the more that man studies the creation, the more it's impossible to avoid the conclusion that God is great and God is glorious and God is majestic and God is amazing and God is to be worshipped. Of the trillions of cells in the human body, all you need to do is take one. One little cell. You can spend your lifetime studying one cell. If you were to blow up a cell to be the size of the city of Edmonton, it would be a massive city of factories with all kinds of robots and, and self-replicating and self-mounting uh, um, pathways for the little robots to walk along and to move things from one part to the other and all kinds of things being produced and all kinds of things being delivered and exported. Just one cell is enough to make you fall down in worship before the Creator. God reveals himself even more fully and clearly in the Holy Scriptures. And what we're confessing in the Apostles' Creed is not some stuff that some theologians decided to make up one day. It's not as though the Apostles' Creed was made up by some professors of theology that said, you know what, let's make up some theology that people have to believe. No, the Apostles' Creed is simply summarizing the glorious truths that the Scripture teaches us about who God is and what he has done. Now, there are two types of people on this earth, just two. There are two groups of human beings. The first group are those who are united to the first Adam in his sin, his rebellion, his fall, and his death. And in order to be united to the first Adam and all of the horrible consequences of the fall, in order to be united to him, all you need to do is to be born. And I think every one of us here has been born, right? So we're connected to that Adam. But there is another group. 
And that is a group of human beings who are not united anymore to Adam in his sin, his fall, and his death. But by the power of the Holy Spirit of God, they're united to the Lord Jesus Christ in his death and his resurrection. To be united to Christ is to live. To be united to Adam is to die. And what's the difference between those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ? The difference is faith. What unites us to Jesus is not being born. Being born in a Christian family, being born in the church is in itself not enough. It's a glorious blessing. But it doesn't automatically connect you in a living way to Jesus. All of the blessings of the covenant, all of the blessings of being born into the church, the Christian family, are only embraced when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ with all of our heart. When we have faith, that's what the Holy Spirit gives as a sovereign gift of God. That's what the Holy Spirit uses to unite us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, faith is knowing and trusting God. That's what faith is. It's not necessarily understanding God. Many times we don't understand him. We don't understand some of the things that he reveals in the, in, the, in the word. Some of the things that Paul writes, Peter says, they're difficult to understand. Sometimes we don't understand what he's doing in his works of providence. We don't understand why he sends a sickness or why he takes away a loved one in death. Sometimes we don't understand why hard things are happening to us. But faith is not the same as understanding. We don't need to understand to be united to Christ, but we need to believe. Faith is also not demanding that God fits our profile of what God should be like. Now, some people, they're like that. They're very demanding. They say, you know what? Somebody opens the scriptures and says, look what God says, and look how he reveals himself, and, and the person responds, you know what? My God's not like that. Or they say, well, if that's, what, if that's what God is like, then I don't want him. I don't want anything to do with him. That's not faith. Faith is accepting God at his word. It's trusting his promises. And it's worshiping him for his mighty acts. That's the creed. And the creed, the church, like a little child lisping back the answers which mommy and daddy are teaching her. So in the creed, the church just echoes back to God what he teaches us about himself, who he is and what he has done. Do you know him? Not just about him, but do you know him? If you know him, you love him. God the Father, almighty creator, God the Son, the Redeemer. God the Spirit, the Sanctifier. We love him. God the Father who knits us together in the womb, fearfully and wonderfully made, Psalm 139 says. We love him, the Creator, who, in whom we live and move and have our being. And we trust we trust him if we love him. We trust him if we believe in him. 
We trust what he says about himself, about what he's done, about why he's done it. We trust him when he teaches us in the word of God questions that our society gets wrong, questions that confuse the unbelievers that are around us, questions about gender and sexuality and and marriage and divorce and the ethics of care of those who are elderly and dying and disabled and the role of men and of women to believe in Jesus to believe the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is to accept what God says about his sovereign purpose in creation it's also to trust him that he's sovereign that his sovereign will and guidance in his providence is good and that whatever path he leads us on no matter how much it hurts is in the end for his glory and for our salvation god the father is our creator he made you he knit you together in your mother's womb he made the world you live in And you belong to him. Everything you are, everything you have, every cell in your body has only one purpose, and that is to praise and to glorify and to adore your creator. And then there's God the Son. When we trust and when we believe in God, then we trust and believe in God the Son. We know him, we believe him, we trust in the power of his conception, his birth, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his session at the right hand of God. All the things that we confess here in the creed. We trust in the power of his blood, the efficacy of his sacrifice, that it accomplished what he set out to do, and that not one drop of his blood was shed in vain. And that everyone for whom he died will be converted and will come to faith and will be gathered in in that glorious church gathering work of the Lord Jesus Christ by his word and spirit. And when we know who Jesus is and we know what Jesus has done, not just kind of in a general way, But when we know what he has done for us, for me, then it changes the way we live and it changes the way we think. And then we say together with the Apostle Paul, I have died. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's how the believer lives. Lives for Christ. Lives unto Christ. Lives in Christ. And if we know Jesus in that way, then we have this overwhelming desire to share that incredible blessing with others. If you're in the desert and you're dying of thirst and you find an oasis, you're going to drink deeply. You're going to praise God for it. But if you know there are a thousand people on the other side of that sand dune that are dying of thirst, are you going to go tell them? Would you? I hope so. And so if we know the one who is life itself, then we have an overwhelming desire to share him with others. And then there's God, the Holy Spirit. 
And again, if we really believe, we know not just about him, but we know him, we know the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our hearts, in our lives. We know his power to sanctify, to make us holy. We know his power which comes in and burns away the filth and the dirt and the secret corners of our hearts. And we know the power of the Holy Spirit to to bring new life, to transform us and renew us. And we know how to access that power. It's through the means of grace. So the believer, the believer doesn't just talk about it. The believer goes after it. In prayer, he will give his grace and Holy Spirit only to those who fervently ask him for and seek these gifts. And so the believer longs for more power of the Spirit in his life and in his heart and in his relationships And so the believer is eager for the means of grace, eager to spend time in prayer individually and with family, with husband, with wife, with with small groups and with the church corporately gathered. The believer is eager for the word and for the sacraments and for Bible study and for Bible reading and for Christian conversation and for mutual upbuilding. even knows where the power is, where the glory is, where God comes to meet with his people. No greater power, no greater glory. There's no moment or time or place closer to heaven on this earth than when the spiritual temple of our Lord Jesus Christ is gathered together corporately. And when Jesus himself speaks, And when the Holy Spirit is present in the workshop that is his, just as he hovered over the creation at the beginning, so he hovers over the gathered church. And then things happen. Where there's the word and the spirit, things happen. Just like in Genesis 1, miracles happen. Life comes forth out of nothingness, out of death. Light comes forth out of darkness. And when we know the Holy Spirit, then we don't want to stay away. We don't want to stay away from the the church services. We experience his renewing and sanctifying power in our lives and our relationships. And then we want others to experience the same thing. We know a lot of broken people, right? And we're, we're eager that they share in that experience of new life and and restoration and sanctification and healing. That's a summary of the gospel. It's all about God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's what faith is. Knowing, loving, trusting God. But our catechism has a question, in, as usual, in question answer 25. What's all this talk about three persons if there's only one God? And that's a very good question. And it's a difficult question. 
because it doesn't fit into our heads. But it's a good thing that it doesn't fit into our heads. Because if God could fit into our heads, if God could be understood by our minds, if we could put God under a microscope and say, yes, these are the parts of God and this is how he's put together and this is how he works, then he wouldn't be God, would he? God is bigger than we are. God is wholly other. He's in a different category. Nothing in creation can be compared with him. There is no analogy. There's nothing to check him against. We don't know anything or anyone that comes close to being like God. He's unique. And that's why, despite the fact that in our experience, one person is one being, when God comes to us and says, I am one being in three persons, then the believer says, Lord, I don't get that. I don't understand that. But you're telling me that. And I fall down. And I worship you. How do we know that God is one and three? Well, the scripture actually is full of teaching from various angles, which communicates the glorious mystery of the Trinity. So we can come at it from a lot of angles. One of them is the fact that God is love. It doesn't say that God began to be love when he created the world. Scripture says that God is love. Now, love requires a subject and an object. For love to exist, there has to be somebody that's loving and somebody or something that's being loved. Who was God loving before the foundation of the world? Well, he was loving us in Christ. But God, before the creation of the world, eternally exists in perfect love. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in intimate communion. We get a a little glimpse of that in Ephesians chapter 1. We read through that together. And as you read through this chapter, especially the first part of it, you get a, it's like the Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit, using the Apostle Paul, kind of lifts the curtain, the veil between time and eternity and gives us a little glimpse into the eternal decrees of God, what was happening in God before he made the universe. And what do we see? We see love. He predestined us in love. In Christ. We see this glorious, this holy, this loving cooperations of the three persons of the Trinity to create us and then to redeem us. And so we learn that even before the foundation of the world, even before we existed, even before you were born, Jesus loved you. God the Father loved you. God the Spirit loved you. And in Ephesians chapter 1, we get a bit of an idea of what theologians call the covenant of redemption, that before the world was even made, God the Father and God the Son made a covenant together that God the Father would send the Son, 
that the Son would accept to be sent, that he would come to this earth, that he would humble himself and lay aside his heavenly glory and majesty for a time, that he would be found in human form and humble himself to die even a death on the cross. And all of this to save you and to save me. And if you read through the Gospel of John, you notice how many times Jesus says, the one who has sent me, over and over and over. He speaks about Father sending him and him being sent to save us. So the Trinity is not a dry, dusty, theological invention dreamed up in some ivory tower. The doctrine of the Trinity is something scripture teaches and it's something that the church confesses after centuries of reading and studying and discussing and debating about the scriptures. And the mystery of the Trinity is this, that God is one, one being, that God is three persons in that one being. We get that teaching already from the very beginning of the scriptures in the Old Testament. Over and over the scriptures say, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Through the prophet Isaiah, God speaks to his people. He says, turn to me. He speaks to the whole earth. He says, speak to me, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. It's not two gods. It's not three gods. There's one God. And at the same time, the Old Testament hints not only at the unity of God, but also diversity within that unity. We see that already in the creation. God creates, but how does he create? Through the word. And, and then there's also the spirit hovering over the creation. And then we, we read those fascinating words, let us make man. We read about God being the creator, but then in Psalm 104, we read about the, the Holy Spirit creating life and renewing the face of the ground. And then we come to Colossians chapter 1 in the New Testament, and what was kind of faint in the Old Testament suddenly becomes clearer. Because to the Colossians, Paul writes, for by him, Christ, all things were created. In heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So the scriptures just Change it up. God the Father created everything. God the Spirit creates things. God the Son is the one who created all things. And then we go back to the Old Testament. We see that mysterious figure of the angel of the Lord. And, and we see that normal angels, when you fall down and worship them, they, they get very uncomfortable. They say, whoa, whoa, don't do that. I'm just an angel. Stand up. Don't worship me. Worship God. And then we see people worshiping the angel of the Lord, and he has no objection to it. We begin to understand that in some of the appearances in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, it's the eternal Son of God. Our Lord Jesus Christ, before he came here and was born as a baby, already 
active in the Old Testament times. And then in the Old Testament, we read in Isaiah 63 about the people of God rebelling and grieving the Holy Spirit. We stop and think about what that means, grieving the Holy Spirit. Can you grieve a thing? Can you say, you know, I really grieved that chair. I made that chair very sad. Children, can a chair get sad? Not a normal one. Can some kind of power get sad? Can you say, you know, I really grieved the electricity. The electricity got very sad. You can't grieve a thing. You can't grieve a power or a force. You can only grieve a, a person. And then in the New Testament, it becomes a lot clearer. What's kind of faint in the Old Testament, it's like God turns on the lights in the New Testament. And we see that what is attributed to God the Father is also attributed equally in the same way to Christ the Son and to the Holy Spirit. For instance, speaking about the resurrection, the scripture just changes things up. It says, God raised Jesus up. And then in another place, the scripture says, Christ rose. And Jesus himself says, I lay down my life, I take up my life. And then in another place, the scripture says, the Spirit raised Jesus, and he will raise you as well. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the same work is attributed to all three. And then we read in the Old Testament that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father. And in the New Testament, Paul attributes that to the Lord Jesus Christ, that every knee will bow to him and every tongue will confess his glory, that he is king of kings. And then we come to Acts chapter 5, and, and Peter is speaking to Ananias and Sapphira, and he says to them, he says, listen, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. And then a little bit later he says, you have not lied to man, but you have lied to God. So Peter, he calls the Holy Spirit God. And then we come to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God the Son is God. And then we see at, the, at Pentecost, just like in the Old Testament, when the tabernacle was made or the, or the temple was finished, then the glory of God came and descended upon that building and filled it when it was inaugurated. And so the spiritual temple in the New Testament, made of living and spiritual stones, is filled on Pentecost with the glory and power of God himself. The Holy Spirit comes to live in the midst of his people. And so I could go on, but I won't. But more and more as we read the scripture and study the scripture prayerfully, the more we learn about the glorious God who is one in three persons. And in glorious oneness, God in three persons, he loves and he elects and he predestines and he creates and he redeems and he regenerates and he renews and he sanctifies and he sovereignly does all of this and he ordains all of this for our salvation and for his glory. And when we learn about 
him and who he is and what he has done, then all we can do is glorify his name. Glory to God, glory to the Father, glory to the Son, glory to the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That's Father being glorified. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. That's God the Son. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 and 14, in him you also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him was sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Glory to the Spirit. And the more we know God, the more we want to praise him. In the Old Testament, the Trinity is kind of faint. In the New Testament, God turns on the lights and makes it a little more clear. But the way we know God now is nothing compared to the way we're going to know him. We haven't seen anything yet. We only have a faint idea of the glory of the triune God. But the day is coming when our faith will be made sight. The day is coming when we will see the glory of God in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. The day is coming when we will join with all the heavenly beings and we will sing holy, holy, holy to the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. You know, sin is falling short of the glory of God. Faith is falling down before the glory of God. In fact, faith is falling headlong into the glory of God. The day is coming when the earth will be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The day is coming when we will live and breathe and swim in infinite oceans of the glory of God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. The day is coming when the slightest thought or word or act will only be glory to the triune God. That's where you're headed. So start practicing now. Amen.